Two movies enter, one movie leaves. This is The Great Movie Showdown. With me today are Matt Smith and Will Goodnow. Hey everybody, it's Matt Smith. What's up, Will? What's up, Will? And Zach, what's your name? I'm Zach Twitty. Oh, do you (laughs) say that? Like when you intro the the show? Hang on. We'll get this intro, you guys. Did you guys hear the background noise at all? No. Okay, cool. How about you at home? Can you hear the background noise? Yeah. Our listeners at home, please let us know in two weeks when you listen. Okay, well, looks like I'm definitely editing this one. Um, (laughs) What was I saying? Today on The Great Movie Showdown, we are facing Coco, a movie about the Mexican Day of the Dead, and The Little Mermaid, a movie about being a mer... A movie about being a mermaid <laughs> and wanting to be a person that loves a human. <laughs> this is a the great we could all movie really showdown. Do. Oh my god! <laughs> all right, so uh, Matt, you want to take us off here? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Little Mermaid versus Coco—that's a very interesting matchup because it's like a lot of similarities. Where it's like a young child. We got Miguel, I believe his name is right, Miguel. Yeah, we got 12-year-old Miguel, we got 16-year-old Ariel, and they're basically disobeying their family. They want to do something, and their family doesn't approve of it until the end where they do approve of it. And I just wanted to go over, like, the similarities of that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, no, like, with you guys. Like, it's just something I noticed. Go ahead, come on. No, no, I was like, I was asking you guys. Oh, you're opening the floor to us. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, it's definitely, and I mean, this seems like, this seems like a common thing that we do see in a lot of Disney and Pixar films. I mean, we get it with, with Finding Nemo. Don't swim out in the open water. You'll get eaten by a shark. We've got it with Miguel here where he's, um, his family comes from this shoemaker background and they're like great, great grandfather, was a, mu- a musician that like ran off to perform and then walked out on his family basically right from what we're told in the beginning of the story yep and has has basically put a coup out on any sort of music any sort of musical anything singing instruments all of that just out of their world and just decided to be shoemakers forever and that's what their family does and so all of the kids family are all super into that all of ariel's family are super into being mermaids and not walking yeah they're like royalty Um, there i guess yeah yeah um i will tell you this as far as um storytelling kids stories fairy tales things like that i always resort to um a really really amazing quote from uh, guillermo del toro when uh he was getting all the uh praise for pan's labyrinth and they were talking about you know what was your idea for the script you know did you want to do like a monster movie says no i wanted to do a fairy tale into a sense, which is, you know, it's going to be dark, it's going to be violent, because fairy tales, as we know, are inherently dark and violent. What they're meant to do, they're scary stories that you would tell kids, and they all they all have one thing in common, disobedience. And that's the thing that, like, mm-hmm. as you were pointing out, Zach, that, like, it's a tried-and-true formula. As far as we can trace back time, you know, we've been telling these kids stories. And so Disney, being smart, 
takes these stories and just retells them, repackages them. Right. Obviously, we know The Little Mermaid is nothing like Hans Christian Andersen's version, but it does have one thing in common. Yeah, it does have one thing in common. That's disobedience. A Jamaican crab. Oh, sorry. No, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The inciting incident of each of the stories, like what propels a plot, is disobedience. You you disobey your parents. You grow from it. You learn, and you become your own person from it. You know, you make mistakes, Mm -hmm. and your parents learn to love you for who you are. Or in this case. In Miguel's case, in Coco, it's about his family learning that, oh, wow, music is ingrained in our family, you know, and that he didn't leave us. And, you know, this is one part the, the great great grandfather didn't leave the family. Something else happened. I mean, should we go into spoilers? Should I go ahead and spoil no, oh, oh, hold on. I just want to bring up another point real quick. Like, I noticed a trend with like Pixar movies, and I think it's been like for Pixar movies throughout and like with yeah. Disney movies that are like, more recent like they seem more heartfelt and i think like the disney renaissance movies like maybe because they're based off of old fairy tales they're kind of like you can't really relate to them like like people can relate to like toy story 3 people can relate to coco Mm -hmm. like coco makes everybody cry and like with maybe maybe it's just with little mermaid like the situation is like just too crazy where she like there's there's no like there's like a family aspect to it, but it's like not as great as how it is with Coco and her whole entire like love of like the guy that he, that she meets and like rescues just once. It's like something that like real people like can't relate to, but like relating to like an old family member and wanting to be able to like see your great, great grandfather again. And like, like basically the family connection is something that we can relate to. And I feel like Pixar and newer Disney movies, like kind of like Wreck-It Ralph and uh, Moana, like they can, they kind of have that aspect to it. But with like the Disney Renaissance movies, like the situations are too grand that, and like maybe they're too like stereotypical fairy tales that right. we don't really have that connection to it. Like, cause like what, like Beauty and the Beast, like there's sad parts to it, but do you really have like an emotional connection to it or do you just watch it and you're like, okay, I know everything's going to be happy eventually. But with like Coco, you don't know like what's going to happen. Is he going to be able to see Hector again? Like, and like, it's just a lot of plot twists and it's like, yeah, you can go on Will. I was going to say, you touched on something that's really important to what makes Coco such a wonderful movie is that it deals with what I think the rest of us always struggle with in our family is remembering, you know, our, our grandparents, um, ones who have such a big um, effect on our family, where we come from, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't just like, I hate to say it, but it doesn't just culturally appropriate, you know, Mexican culture. It actually ingrained in the storytelling from music. That's what happens when you like actually have the culture make it. And then nobody really has a problem with it and ends up making a better movie. Like the yeah. same thing with Moana. It, that's very true. And that's the thing. It's like yeah. it, it comes across in all facets of the storytelling from the way that the opening of the film is with the um, the kind of artistic, I guess you would say, like um, mm-hmm. like paper mache or, or something like that. It was really cool to see that. Like, oh, yeah. That intro. That, that intro was awesome. It's so beautiful. The whole movie is just amazing yeah. to watch. Uh, they're not just using this one particular style of animation. They're also going across different styles and different details. And then, of course, you know, my favorite inclusion, which is like 
it's not just Mexican. It's also um, a part of my Puerto Rican side of my family, which is the chancla. You see grandma come out with the chancla, you already know what time it is. She's got, she takes her sandal off, which is the chancla. And that thing is like known throughout the world. That shit will devastate countries. Grandma, <laughs> everybody runs, dude. Everyone's ducking for the hills. Dude, that chancla's coming for you. And it was one of the funniest moments ever when she stops that mariachi in the beginning. And like yeah. take the chancla off, and then she like splits it in her hand and puts it back on her foot. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. And um, the, the level of detail. I mean, in and once again, the animation Pixar are so far and beyond anyone else. I mean, even in not just the Land of the Dead, which we'll go into, but I mean, they actually decided to use the um. And I don't know how to pronounce it, but the the spirit guides, right? They aren't. Oh, just, yeah. It's not just a weird animation thing that they use that is a famous mexican art form that was started um and it, it, it's so beautiful to see them actually do it in 3d because that they didn't even change that art they were like no no, no we'll keep them as this we're not going to highly detail the creatures we're going to illuminate right. them to match match the uh, the colors that you see and it's it's better for it it's amazing it really is yeah so do you uh do you guys want to that's basically what all i had to say for the intro mm-hmm. do you guys want to like do little mermaid first let's do little mermaid first yeah i i got a couple things to say about little mermaid so the first thing i want to say i what i always loved about little mermaid is the poster and i'm not talking about like the video cassette art that has the penis on it wait (laughs) what you don't know about that no the cover art. Even even Will knows about it. He was at my house. He he saw my like old v- VHS tape of Little Mermaid and took a photo of it. Yeah, the penis is on it on the original. It's like a an erect penis. Where on the on the cover art, like a part of the castle, I bet. I think. <laughs> oh, okay. And and I guess like what the excuse is is like some like the guy who drew it he's like oh like we spent forever like a bunch of long nights it was a mistake but like the theory is somebody just hit it in there just for somebody to see well there is like a um a disney like penis squad now like a a (laughs) department of disney that goes through all of the animations like the newer stuff, like when they were making Gravity Falls, and I heard them talk about this, where they had the Disney like censorship board come in to try and find to like look and say, "Oh, is this a hidden penis? Is this a hidden? No. Pe- Holy shit, so, that is in there." There's there's also like an older movie, like from the eighties, where they just like had they like threw like a picture of an like a topless woman in like one of the windows of like a falling scene, and it's on Snopes and everything. And you can just see it, and it's like, yeah, that's somebody threw it in there in like one frame. So I I don't know who goes like frame by frame looking. Well, for... I'm sure this wasn't back then, but they definitely have this now. Yeah, where they go through the the censorship board and everything for all of their all of their TV shows and movies and stuff. Which yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you have stuff like this. Like... Oh yeah, and when you have like online, <laughs> where I don't know. I don't know who like looks for terrible th- or looks for things that are like hidden and random shows, but yeah, a bunch of neckbeards. It's like I an guess. I Spy book, but <laughs> jeez. <laughs> All right. Oh, so, uh, so sorry. Anyway, back the to the real... cover art. Yeah. So the real poster I want to talk about. It's so iconic. It's the Little Mermaid poster, and it shows her sitting on a rock. And 
I don't know if it's the sun or the moon because it's night out, but there's a big yellow circle. Maybe it's the moon. Maybe it's the sun rising. I I don't know. I mean, it's definitely the moon. Yeah, because it's still dark. It has to be. Yeah, Yeah, and there's stars out. (laughs) Yeah, it's just more red. It's like so iconic. You see like a silhouette of Little Mermaid, and then it also says like the tagline. It says, somewhere under the sea and beyond your imagination is an adventure in fantasy. And I'm Mm. like, that's just so enticing. And like, whenever I read that, it reminds me of something else. Let me go find it. So there's a plaque when you go to Magic Kingdom in in Orlando, at least. I don't know about like the Disneyland one. Mm. When you walk by it, it says, here... Here you leave today and you enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. And it kind of reminds me of that. Just something like epic and like enticing that just like piques your interest. And I don't know. And I, I just love that tagline. And it's just like a beautiful poster. Like I'm not even like a like a huge fan of The Little Mermaid. I like the movie. But like part of me just wants to get that poster just because – I feel like it's the beginning of the Disney Renaissance and like the long stretch of movies that everybody loves. Yeah. And it's it's just like all started with this. Well, what was so funny is if you guys actually uh, look at the, I think it was the um, Awakening Sleeping Beauty documentary that Disney released. And it talked about the uphill battle that Howard Ashman, Alan Menken and the directors of Beauty, um, sorry, um, The Little Mermaid had to actually get, any part of that movie um, into the into the um, actual like animation stage because they were fighting them tooth and nail for the songs to be included. The one being the most iconic, which is you know um, part of your world. I was like just about to talk about that. The studio literally every time said, "You got to cut that out. That, that hurts the pacing. Like you guys got to do something else. Get right through the window." It makes, a, it makes the kids all rowdy. Is like what happened. It was is, that, so, is that really what they said? It makes yeah, the kids all rowdy? Yeah, let me go see if I can find it again. But it was like, I don't know like oh, how part of your world can make you rowdy. I mean, these were different yeah. times. This was 1988. Well, me, no, people just weren't ready. Let me go see. Uh, it said, nearly cut from the film when it seemed seemingly tested poorly with an audience of school children who became rowdy during the scene. Maybe maybe rowdy like they're bored. Yes. So they started like, fighting with yeah. each other. They believe that the kids would get bored and restless in this studio. Now, what they don't tell you is that was a random ass group of kids, yes, off a school bus or something like that. Like, but then when they retested it with a little bit better animation, because then that was the original like um, pencil drawings. They didn't actually. Oh well, them. yeah, they're gonna get bored. Right. They don't know. Yeah, I would get bored. Please. Right, and so like when it was just the um, you know guys, you know what I'm talking about like the stills. Yeah, the, the animatics. Yeah. And so like they don't have anything based off. Well, they polished up some of the animation. They got the families of the animators in there this time, the kids and stuff, and they all kind of appreciated it. And suddenly it tested so well, and then they retested it again. And then I mean, that sounds like they kind of uh, they kind of primed the pot a little if they had the family members in well, there. Well, I mean, they had to at this point because the studio wouldn't pay for like, you know, calling or like whatever, you know, I'm talking about like the process of getting um, a test. Gotcha. The studio did not believe in it. I mean, it was it was such an uphill battle. And um, it really kind of shows that, like, yeah, it started this renaissance, but it was so hard for them to get the film that they wanted to the theater for us to appreciate it. And, I mean, even the most, like I said, the song that I actually really did want to get to, Matt, was A Part of Your World, which is, like, 
I'm not a 16 year old girl. I have no idea how I can relate to this girl, but everyone can relate to watching another part of your life that you really want to get to, that you really feel like you're ready for. And it's kind of being withheld from you, whether it be, you know, an over strict parent or, you know, just some kind of life obstacle. And you're, you're trying your best to be the best version of yourself constantly. So will not to like cut you off or anything, even though I'm doing that right now. Have you, have you ever heard of the term of a, I want song? Uh-huh. And that's like that's like a thing and I don't I don't know if it was like I think it started with Little Mermaid maybe but it's like a term for Disney songs where like well it's I like I want to be where the people are like that whole entire song and then I guess I just can't wait to be king is an I want song. I think even in Pocahontas just around the river bend is a I want song and it's like when people are making these movies they kind of they want to have a song like that, which is, and I think like Moana even has one, like an I want. Yeah, song. That like her song when she's like it on does, the boat yeah. or whatever. But you got to remember that the um, the format started from Howard Ashman's experience on the stage, so really it, it didn't start with Disney Animation; it was already there. It, like I mean, when the prominence there, and then like popular. I mean, like for example, everybody talks about with Hamilton right now. If you go back to one of the original, like I'm sorry, one of the first songs in Hamilton, it's really setting up. What does Hamilton want? You know, what are his aspirations? Well, I mean, that's just musicals in general. Also, be on the ten dollar bill. Tried and true, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, every musical starts off with that because you also are establishing character via song, so you have to do that. So, yeah, Howard Ashman brought that element of the musical to the Disney film that actually that structure. I'm sorry, and that that growth of character that had not been done before. Songwriting was amazing, which you know, once again, like that's that's the one thing that I will say. Little Mermaid has over Coco. Coco has the culture, the artisanal um, aspects of it. I mean, it, and, and the storytelling is amazing. But the one thing that the Little Mermaid has over pretty much every film that's ever been made is the quality of the songwriting, the, the quality of the music. Jody Benson, yes, like Jody Benson's voice is so iconic now. I mean, like I said, in just one song, she just fucking nailed it. I'm sorry. Oh, like, I I assume you mean uh, poor unfortunate souls. No, yeah, right. That's true. Uh, who did okay. that? Do we know? It, like, it's some like huh? older lady. Like, like she's in her nineties right now, and she's I, like, that's her name. And she's like, she's still like on okay. talk shows, like singing that song and quoting that song, and like really? even like doing lines. I, I watched like a YouTube video where she was like reading like script reading with somebody called on the audience. And it's some like little old lady that just doing these lines of Ursula. And it's like kind of weird, but yeah, she has a great voice. Yes, she does. She has, she has amazing voice acting in that film. And it's, it shows also once again, that um, when you actually give animators something really fun to animate with her voice and with the character of Ursula, the character design, Oh, you know, like her design, what it was based off of, right? Like no. an octopus. No, it's uh, based off of a, a like a famous drag queen performer in the eighties oh, right. named Divine. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about that. I never heard of Divine, but uh, like until like just reading up on the movie. But I guess Divine was like a big deal, and yeah, yeah, Divine died like a year before the movie was even made. But like, if you type in divine and look at, look mm. at pictures, you can see like the Ursula, like comparison, like especially in the face. The, yeah. You could definitely see the, um, even just the, um, the homage to drag in general oh, with how yeah. her character design is. I'm looking at it. I right never really now. thought about that. 
I don't know if Divine's a boy or a girl. I haven't well, like, gone that far. Uh, hold on, let me look it up right now. You guys keep talking while I'm I'm researching. Well, I mean, considering it's drag, I would presume. Yeah, right. No, it's yeah. definitely yes. Divine performance. No, hold on. Harris Glenn Misted, better known Milford. by his stage name, yeah. Divine. So I, mean, I thought drag, drag queens are like, yeah. <laughs> well, obviously she would prefer, right? I mean, let's just be honest. You know, well, it depends prefer. when you're like in or out of character. Because I mean, That's it's true. it is a character. I don't know a lot of drag queens personally, so I don't, I don't really. I just see them perform. <laughs> you guys don't need to know what drag queens I know, but just know that I love all my queens. Funny anyway. enough, random tangent. Uh, there's like a di- like a local place where I go for Disney like karaoke, where they'll like pick your name out of a jar, and you have to go sing whatever Disney song comes up, and it's hosted by a drag queen, and the drag queen does a very good job. <laughs> Like now it's can, it's a fun time, and usually like insults us, like because like I can't read any of you bitches' like handwriting, and like just like look <laughs> at us, and it just makes it so much better. There is nothing better than being insulted by a wonderful queen. Yes, it's very true. Yeah, no it makes you, it makes you feel important. You haven't lived until it happened. Exactly. <laughs> no, Ursula's design. Actually, now that I'm looking at the pictures, yes, I mean they did a spot on job. It, yeah. It's amazing, especially with that. But I was going to say. Can you imagine the amount of thought and time went into the tentacles? And then remember when in the underwater scenes, which are a lot. That was pretty much most of the movie. Yeah. And it's like they have to make sure the hair looks that certain way it moves. Yeah. It has that buoyancy to it. And then obviously the uh, musical number under the sea, you have the lighting as well, which, you know, you have to make sure that the ground or at least the sea floor, you know, has that reflective Mm -hmm. quality because they're in a shallower part of it. it. And it works. It works really well the way they did it. Um, props to pretty much all those individual animators again, either who can't be named, which naming actor voices, but I wish I knew the animators' names. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you can look them up on the IMDb and find I'm them looking, all. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Oh. Yeah, I, I also like the the Kiss the Girl song. There's oh, that's like, a great one. Yeah, there's like there's like a part in particular where like one of the fish they're just like going off on a solo, like towards the end, where it's like. Like during like the la la la's and they're just going like crazy like yeah 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 I I can't even do it justice but if you hear the song you know it and it like every time I hear it I'm just singing along this <laughs> is so intense it's like a brilliant solo should have won an Oscar there should be a category for best fish solo in a song for that the seems very specific yeah I'm pretty sure this was the only one also I want to <laughs> notice I'm looking at the cast list right now. And Renee Aber, Aberjoinus, Jonas, I'm not sure how to say his name, but he was Chef Louie. And he was also oh. Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which That's is funny. my favorite Star Trek. Oh, wow. wow. Bring us all back to the Star Trek. Yes, very good. Yeah. Rest in peace, good sir. <laughs> no, like he's actually dead. Oh, well, I figured, but I mean. Yeah. Are, are, is that funny to you, Will? A, a man's yeah, dead and you kind of messed up. Death humors me, okay? Death humors me. Zach, oh. Zach, we need to have a meeting after the show. Like, I, yeah. I don't know if I want to. I have to like actually it. edit that out because I can't like besmirch the good, the good <laughs> name of uh, of Mr. Odo. Oh, stop! It was an awful <laughs> laugh. I apologize to anyone who can laugh at death. Meanwhile, well, this is being edited out. Will, don't worry. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You could say all the mean things you want to now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I can't do that to the Star Trek community. They don't. We don't want to. We don't want to get on the bad tre- side of that. We don't want Trekkies attacking us. Yeah, dude. They'll. Use, they're set phasers to to uh, cancel. <laughs> yeah. There goes our sponsor money. Yeah. Well. Oh Lord. I've ruined the show. That's it. I, I've literally just thrown a whole monkey wrench into the engine of the show. Anyway, so um. Well, off of your Star Trek reference, I have to say that there are some fantastic uh, backgrounds in The Little Mermaid. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't think I can name every single painter, but I will say that. Are you just reading a list now? I am not reading a list. Yes, I am. (laughs) I will name two in particular. There's Joyce Alexander, um, who did a fantastic job. And she was also, believe it or not, they used um, airbrushing on these backgrounds, which now it makes sense now that I'm thinking about it. To Were get these like panes of glass like they do for matte paintings or was this like actual yeah. celluloid? I see. That's the thing that what's so cool is they have zero graphic cameras and they have animation cameras. So they were clearly trying to get depth of field as well because you're underwater yeah. through objects. And like, that's, that's dope. So I would have to imagine, yes, they probably used a combination of both maybe to mm-hmm. kind of get that look. And that is um, a really also, cool effect. Right, and it would make sense that they would use airbrushes because if you're underwater, mm. everything from a distance has a softer look to it. Yeah, because you've like, still got that sediment that's being kicked up from the water and occluding occluding whatever your light source is. Yeah, and that's that's pretty that's pretty dope. I gotta admit that I, that's something I didn't know until I actually started looking. At I'd it. never really thought about about like the lighting in the Little Mermaid until you actually mentioned that. But yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, dude. I, I I wasn't thinking about it either until um you encouraged me to actually look up the animators and I started seeing like different people's <laughs> walls. That is so dope that they had people that yeah. were airbrushing it. And then obviously you have oils and paints and things like that. Yeah. And um that is astounding to me that, that that level of artistry was put into just the backgrounds. This is not even character animation, which has right. its own vision. And people it's, doing it's like what I say, like ninety percent of any kind of good VFX, CG, animation, anything, 90% of having your character model or backgrounds look good is the lighting. Because if your lighting, if your lighting looks bad or even like, even the big thing is inherently we can look at lighting and not notice it, but there's something that feels off when you see that like light isn't being emitted in the right way or like shadows are facing the wrong direction or weird, weird stuff like that. Yep. that subconsciously your brain notices it. It's kind of like the uncanny valley thing. Like when you right. have the CG faces of characters that aren't like proportionally just right. Like with the cats movie, we have that a lot where it's like something's so close to looking human, but it's not quite human and it scares us and it makes us very afraid. Right. And with a lot of like early CG stuff, like um, what's a good example. If you think about, um, the Mummy Returns, the Scorpion King with the rock when right. he comes out of that tomb oh. and, and his face is like oh, just really weird. It's terrible. Yeah. It's like a yeah. PlayStation 2 graphic back in yeah. the day. Right. Right. But it's like, you know, it's a CG character. And I mean, back then it was kind of freaky because I was seven or whatever when I watched it. I don't, I was probably like 10. I don't know. But it's, it's close to like looking human, but it's not quite and the lighting's off and the skin and the pores aren't stretching the right way. Nope. So it 
it just feels like it's trying to be human and it's not. And that Sorry. just it throws off that Did you ever watch that brain. video where like people try to fix that scene? There's like some YouTube video. Oh yeah, where Corridor Digital does that. Yeah, yeah. I remember I seeing love, that. I love all the stuff that they put out. You should definitely check them out. Well, great you YouTube channel. That is a great segue to get right back to, I want to kind of bounce back to Coco and the fact that once again, mm-hmm. uh, Matt, Zach, particularly Zach, I know once again, just will always bring up the weird kind of scary character models that they used in Toy Story and how Pixar has now literally elevated themselves where it's a mainly human cast. But then even when you get to um, the land of the, the dead or the land of the remembered, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. um, you have characters that are pretty much all bone, but there's such a level of detail to where they have these kind of um, artistic engravings in the bones themselves. Yeah. And there's a real texture to it. Like it's so real. It's and that's like if you've ever seen love, the paper mache like, skeleton marionettes that they bring out on like the Day of the Dead. They yeah. have all those kinds of engravings and stuff in them. So the skulls, even the skulls and the skeletons in that are very stylized in that way where, I mean, there's a lot more bone in those skulls than you would have in an actual human face. Like exactly. their skulls are a lot rounder, a lot puffier, a lot. Right. They look less like kind of traditional spooky, scary skeleton-y and more like that like nice, round, soft, warm Pixar characters that we all just love. And you just feel like you could just squeeze them and they're just little marshmallows. Yeah, I love how they use the bones where like he'll like collapse and he'll use his bones to like knock at a window or like he'll just drop and then his like body will come back to normal. It's like really interesting to watch. Isn't there a gag late in um, late in the movie when he first is trying to get in to see um, Ernesto de la Cruz? Isn't there like something where he he, he like breaks down his body to get into like the tuba or something like that? I forget no, what it is. I don't think no, it that was, was a kid. Yeah, like he just hid in the tuba and yeah, uh, technically yeah, was that was a tusaphone, not a tuba. Okay, uh, band geek. Yeah, <laughs> but it was just such a really well thought out gag that I was like, ah, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they also use the gag of um, it's early in the movie when he loses an arm or something like that, or the kid, or yeah, his I forget what it was, and his like arm points out, and that's all stuff. And then obviously they use the bit where they're in the phone booths together, or what should be like a little confessional phone booth, I don't know. And the eyeballs drop out of the the, the eye sockets into his mouth when he tells them. Um, so that's that's really fun. Oh right. Stuff. Yeah, um, great gags that they use that are really just kind of low hanging fruit. Um, but more importantly, <laughs> more important. What a weird, like backhanded compliment. I know, yeah, these were great it? gags that were low hanging fruit. Because it's just like you want to see it. Like, it's almost like they give you what you're asking for. You're like, come on, man. It's yeah. Just, it's like I can. And they use it in such a, such a fun, creative way, and they, just that whole that whole world that they built in the land. Yeah, of the, and actually, that's what I was going to get to. Is, um, the uh, the character of the the hairless dog. Um, oh, uh, Hector. Movie. Or no, not Hector. What was his name? I forget what the dog's name was. Uh, dog name. I don't know. I can't see it. Was something. I Dante. Okay, but I just know that that is an actual dog that has really big reverence in Mexico. Um, they are considered a big deal. I know that like for the shorthand name of it is actually a uh, Cholo. Um, not the. Mexican, like, hey, Cholo, no, nothing like that. It's um, short for a really long name, but I, I can't pronounce it. I don't want to butcher it. But um, it's a really, really renowned dog in Mexico. They are hairless. Um, they don't obviously look as cartoony as they make this one do, but 
They it's, don't? No, not the face. You know what I mean? Like, he looks goofy and stuff like that. It's meant for, you know, him to be that. But it's so cool that they actually just put that in there. And it's not even explained. It's not a big deal. It's just the dog the kid knows, right? And it's like, that is so awesome. Like, that is the, the little details that Pixar will include. Just that you can think about later and you can start to research. It's it's so underappreciated, I feel like. Will, I want to bring up a scene real quick. Like, a scene that, like, really, like, lets you know the stakes of the movie. And I think it's just, like, a great scene. It's when, like, he's going to go get the guitar for Miguel. Heck, or, uh... Yeah, Hector's going to go, like, find a friend and get the guitar for Miguel. And then, yeah. like, he talks to the guy and he, pl- he like, plays a little song. And then the guy ends up fading away because nobody remembers him. And, like, Miguel's just, like, watching it. And he's like, oh, my God, like, this is what happens. And I and I just love, like, him paying respect with the tequila shot. Like, I just it's just like so cool and like part of me hopes like i know he's dead i know he's bones but i really hope he got to like taste it or like feel it or i don't know if it's like pirates of the caribbean where they're like drinking liquor and they're eating food but they don't like i don't know why because they don't taste anything and they don't need it right i mean and that's one of the things that they never really explain and you don't really need to because that would slow the movie to a halt if you had to explain yeah, everything yeah, we don't need like a world. captain barbosa like speech where it's like oh i want to feel the touch of a woman's flesh and <laughs> an apple like, <laughs> we, yeah we don't we don't need like uh hector going on a rant to miguel about that yeah no. i mean we kind of feel feel that a little bit and sort of how this character is i mean hector the arc of that character is incredible and yeah we we, we like don't trust him at first we're like he's yeah. up to something and then we just fall in love with him and that makes him like probably one of the best pixar characters yeah oh, definitely yeah i would definitely i would definitely second that because also the reveal of this amazing song remember me which i think is un- once again just the movie's great, but I don't think people realize the impact of introducing that song the way they yeah. do with Ernesto de la Cruz singing it with all the background props and then the bell falls on them. And it's like this this great song that everyone's like, oh my God, yeah. it's the best song. And it's, it's triumphant. It sounds great. It's big and produced. And then when Hector s- sings, or I'm sorry, um, um, what is the dad? Ernesto name? de la Cruz. Uh, no, Hector. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hector finally reveals what that song was written for and how he yeah. talked about it. It's just singing it to his daughter in his room. And then they actually, you know, have the character sing it in the moment. Oh my gosh. I was bawling. It crushes you. (laughs) Also, also Will, like, like a little thing that like, you don't really notice, but when you look back at the movie, you do notice is uh, like when he's doing the tryout. So he can meet like Ernesto de la Cruz. Yeah. He wants wants to sing, remember me. And Hector's like, no, don't sing that. He's like, "Uh, everybody is singing that. And then he points to like four people practicing it. And like, as like the audience, you're like, oh, yeah, like, okay, that's why he doesn't want to do it. But then when you like look back, it's, oh, that song means a lot to me. And they're like, killing my song that has a a big meaning meaning to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's weird too, because I do like how the music does sort of, feel like it comes from that era ish that it's trying to represent of like the 1930s. Like, yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure what you would, I don't want to say Tex-Mex. It's definitely not Tex-Mex, but that, uh, that kind of, it's not quite like jazz, but it's like that 
south of the border jazz kind yeah. of like feel to it. I I apologize. I don't I know there's like a name for what it is, but I can't for the life of me. Well, not just that. Think of it right now. You said a good job of reflecting that, like Ernesto de la Cruz is a uh, representation of the Mexican movie star at that time, which they did. Right. He basically was like a a Mexican Elvis. If Elvis was a phenom, he had all these little exactly. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's like Mexico also had several stars. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. you know Ernesto de la Cruz is kind of compilation of of more than a few, and it was so cool to see how they went about doing that. And then also showing how hollow that fame really is. And, yeah. and you know, showing what, what they truly value is the heart that the music comes from, which is embedded in Mexican culture. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it doesn't even shy away from the fact that like, it's a big deal that this family doesn't even like music in, in Mexico, which is like music, yeah. is everything. music is everywhere. Everybody does it. And then to, um, finally come to that by the end of the film and once again, you know, how does he help Mama Coco remember him? You know, he sings her the song. And and that's what music has the power to do. And that's what Coco's yeah. final message is, really, is, is you know, a lot of movies are just like, oh, sing from the heart. It's like, no, I mean, Coco's right. literally like, no, the heart sings whether you want it to or not. It's a very- And uh, there is something I want to touch on with that, where um, it is it is really interesting how this movie, like, you couldn't have made this movie in the 80s. Like, no one would have bought it. I, I feel like they probably that, wouldn't have done a good job making it. Well, that too, definitely, certainly. But anyway, uh, my my point being that, like, even from the beginning, when we see Coco and Miguel, and it's it's clear that she has Alzheimer's and dementia and is in a vastly deteriorating state. Yeah, and but still, like Miguel is just all about like talking about how much he loves just hanging out with her and talking to her and all that, and it's just very heartwarming and then um and then when he like plays the song for her to remind her of her father so he doesn't get forgotten which is beautiful and it's well it's it's there are these studies that show that when you have that kind of um like music can bring back that whole part it was uh my great grandma was like on her deathbed and i was playing accordion for her um just like this book of songs from like the 1890s or whatever and it was the first time in i think five or six years that i'd ever seen her like not have the the like tremors and stuff where she was just in a super peaceful place i mean as peaceful as she could be where she wasn't like eliciting these horrifying moans and shaking and like bleeding and stuff she was just at peace and just like resting and she like went off to sleep in a very peaceful way and that's shit i don't know what i was trying to get to here but just the i think the you way- got to a lot just with that statement I will, I will, yeah uh, yeah sorry zach go ahead continue because i was actually going to reinforce that with um i was a cna for three years and there was a gentleman that i took care of his name was don and i had access to the memory care unit and i didn't know that don was going down there to see his uh, his wife, who was suffering from uh, early onset Alzheimer's, and she also sometimes forgot who he was. There would be days where she would act out really bad and say, I don't know you, I don't know who you are, you need to get away from me, and you know, I'd have to help Don get off the floor because I knew the code. And there were the best days are when he would have them play the songs from the time when they would you know dance together and right. they were married, and like he, he found a song 
that they played their reception of their wedding and, and they would get to dance together. And, you know, Don passed away before her, but I remember thinking, man, if they would just keep playing that music, she could remember him. And it it was really, yeah, it was really a beautiful time in my life when I got to, to know Don and he was, he's such a great person. And, um, that's what Coco made me think of when I saw that part, when Miguel was singing to, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Miguel was singing to Mama Coco. Is like, mm-hmm. you, like you were saying, Zach. Music can help bring people back. At least help them put them back where you know their mind can kind of register. You know that happy that happiness because it's connected to those emotions, that feeling, right. and it can really help them. I've seen it do it, and it was really beautiful. And it was a great moment in that movie. I mean, no one can deny that's a powerful scene yeah between that and then when it goes into a year later with like the whole family reunited oh my God. and they're all yeah. listening to music and like the reveal where like uh miguel who like didn't really care about his old family that he was never met and i feel like anybody like a lot of people can relate to that like you might have your your like grandma or even like your dad like tell you about some family member and you'll be like oh yeah that's cool like I was like, yeah, they mm-hmm. seem like a nice person. I've never met them, so I have no connection, which it, right. it feels like kind of weird. Like yeah. you, you feel like you should like care about them, but you don't really know them. And then yeah. you also think about like how in your future, you're probably going to be like telling your your kids' kids about like your parents or your grandparents, and they're probably going to look at you like, oh, yeah, nice. Like I never met them. So I feel like we all like have that connection. Yeah. And like just like the fact that he cares about it, he's like, I think he's like telling like a little baby about all the family, so it's like like the the baby like even knows, and then like Miguel's grandma comes in with the picture, so you know Mama Coco's dead, and then you just see like mm. everybody, like you see Mama Coco meeting uh, Hector, and then you yeah. see, which that's just, one of just the warmest things ever when oh you see God, like yeah. a picture back on it's, there and it's finally so like weird seeing the... like an old lady like it, it reminds me of interstellar where you see like an old lady oh, yeah like yeah, meeting. yeah it, it's really weird and i like not sure how i it's like part of me like in mexican culture it's like maybe you should die a little bit younger so you're in a normal looking body and you're not like <laughs> 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 I mean, that's just the thought. That's just the thought that was in my head. Like, okay, you you live a long time, but that's going to be your body for like the rest of eternity until somebody forgets you. Like, maybe like it's not too bad being oh like you're well, like in Matt, a normal also, like thirty five year old body. I mean, you're still a skeleton. Well, but Matt, then it's also that means that the people are going to forget you sooner because you died sooner true i it's just like a random thought that went into my head yeah that was kind of weird too because i was thinking about that too it's like she's technically the youngest person there but looks the oldest well i mean to that effect yeah i'll go and say this that is something that is very real in the minds of people who are going to be older than their parents were before they died like for example is Mm -hmm. My grandmother died at the age of 52 and everyone was kind of holding their breath when my mom turned 51 because we were like, oh my God, heart problems, diabetes, things like that. And then my mom's now 56. Like we're well over the hump. You know, we're like, oh my God. But now it's like, it's a weird feeling. And I got to have that discussion with my mom about like, you know, mom, it's going to be weird. You know, if, if you believe in that sort of thing and, you know, I kind of 
go between. I don't know. But like, if you do see your mom, you're going to be older than her technically. I mean, you're, you know, she's like, well, that's true, but that's kind of the point. You know, I got, I get to learn from her mistakes. I've treated my body better and I'm going to be much older and that's okay. And so it's cool in a way to think of it as like, Mama Coco gets to see her dad and they get the joke. Like, hey, you're the old lady, but yeah, you're still my dad. And it's it's a fun thing. Yeah. But Matt gotta take it the awkward route. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just like giving I don't know. That's what came into my head. Like I'm like, oh, that's kinda weird. <laughs> but oh, I mean man. that didn't overshadow the just the beauty in that moment. Like no, my eyes, right, it didn't. My eyes I mean, were still very wet. Well, also, like, that scene, like, I, I feel like it kind of, like, loses impact just because of how weird it is. But then when you get moved on to the next scene, that doesn't mean anything. And like, every, and it just makes, it's like sad tears or, like, happy tears that you're crying yeah. during that just because, like, like what's his face? Uh, Miguel is just, like, so happy. He's, like, playing guitar and, like, his family's there. His dead family's there. And it's just, like it's like so loving and it just makes you feel happy. And <laughs> so uh, I, there's like a couple things I want to bring up real quick, like, uh-huh. like random things from the movies or from the movie. So I don't know why like Hector's wife, like still is so mad at him. Maybe it's just because that she was mad at him for so long. But when, even when she founds out, like, hey, I literally got poisoned. It's not my fault. I didn't abandon yeah. you. And she's still mad. Maybe she's like, like, I've been mad at you for, like, however many years. So it's yeah. going to take me a while not to get mad at you. Like, I found that, like, kind of weird. But maybe that's, like, typical, like, relationship. Well, there anger. are some weird some weird things in there that, yeah, we should probably go over, like, the weird bits of Coco. Where it's like, I get it. Writing stories is hard. And these are these are very minor issues like with the overall story that i feel like we're about to analyze right now yeah oh, but- oh hold on before before you go into that i want to bring up like a little tidbit before we get to like analyzing what's wrong i want to talk about like a like a random thing that only people like me notice and it makes me happy it's uh <laughs> just because like it kind of immerses you into the movie yeah. so basically like uh Miguel has a random family member, maybe it's an uncle, I'm not sure, that wears a Mexican soccer jersey. And like usually when you see a Mexican soccer jersey, you might see like the colors, you might see the Mexican flag, you might even see a shirt that says Mexico on it. And then if you're like a soccer fan like myself, you you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, some knockoff Mexican soccer jersey. So I don't know what Pixar did to like get the actual real Mexican soccer team that the national team would be wearing. It even had the, the shirt like maker Adidas. It had the Adidas stripes on it. It had like the Federation's logo on it. And I'm like, that's a shirt that a Mexican would be wearing and Mexicans do wear. And it's the same exact shirt that you can buy. It's a green Mexican national team soccer shirt. And then just me seeing that I'm like, Oh my God. Like, I can't think of another movie that would have like a real shirt from a real like soccer team in the movie. Like what, who would go through all that trouble to like get the rights to have that shirt. And yeah, they're just going to be okay, happy. To yeah, look. I'm like at you the guys right now, like you guys probably don't really know, but like for somebody like me and like probably like the Mexicans that watch the movie, cause it's like big in Mexico. 
And I think they even released it in Spanish as well in Mexico. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so maybe that's why they did it. But I, I just like that they did that. That's just like a little <laughs> little touch. Like you notice like mistakes in movies that bug you. But like yeah. not often you notice like little tidbits that like make the movie better. But continue, Zach. Well, yeah. And I think, well, wasn't this movie like made by a – by um. It had like of the all the way up in the chain was Mexican producers and stuff. Yes, right? Mexican producer, Mexican director. Um, she was um, actually the director is Lee Unkirk, and he doesn't. Maybe he's right. Mexican. It says American. No, 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 no. He was um, half director. There's someone else who was like a. Yeah, there was a co-director. Yeah, um, I'm fine. Who's got the IMDb up? I've no, got like no, 90 like tabs. Adrian Molina, as the gentleman, Adrian Molina. And oh, then, yeah. Adrian Molina did the screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And then, no, no, no. So, he's the co director. Adrian Molina's co director and. And Matthew yeah, Aldrich. By, and screenplay by Adrian Molina and Matthew Aldrich as well. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I was kind of wrong with the female director, but still. Uh, but, Mexican director, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, so it's like all of those small details, like, yeah, that and the, the thing you were talking about earlier with the the sandal and everything. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's just it's awesome to see that level of detail and things like that, that they they come off as like funny gags to us. But then like in the culture, they're like, oh, man, that's that's real, bro. That's like really real. And them just like bawling about it and just how how great that those gags were for them and that just warms your heart to know that like these movies are respecting that culture in that way and they do have these little niche bits as we're about to like go in and talk about some of kind of our weird i don't right. i don't even want to say that they're criticisms well, I, but just things that we noticed yeah um i was just gonna say zach um just to kind of drive that point home is like you gotta think we were talking about toy story 3 and the level of detail in the animation yeah. They carry that over into the facets of character design, cultural mm-hmm. um, aspects, and even the storytelling. But usually they just have so much detail ingrained in it. But now oh, yeah. we're going to pick the, the crap out of it. So go ahead. <laughs> so we sort of have the – so in the beginning, it's very obvious that – or it's obvious to us like – straight from the back when he's like talking about the picture and then Ernesto de la Cruz and they're like, oh, it's obviously this guy. He's got the same jacket and everything and all that, all that. And so when it's like re- revealed, it's like, oh, that's his guitar. What? What? It's like, okay, well, obviously we knew this. And then they pull that swoop on you. Spoiler time now when it's Hector. And um, the thing, the thing that bugs me, okay, is how it's revealed that he was murdered. <laughs> when he's watching like the clip of the movie and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, you said what? What did he say? He said something about like he'll do anything for his brother in the movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's like that scene just happens to be playing right then or whatever, and he's like, "No, this is just a movie. He wouldn't actually." But why? Why would you have that be in a movie? And then like, or like, I don't know Uh which came first, that movie or him often his best friend. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a lot of ideas and he stole a bunch of songs. So he's stealing plot lines from a movie from like his life. 
Maybe it's well, just did he steal like that? A big... Did he steal the plot line from the movie, or did he make uh, them? Well, I guess he wouldn't have been the writer or whatever. No, I mean, I, although he has such a big ego in the movie, he probably was. Yeah, but he's like, oh, I want to do this. I want to. Yeah. I want to leave breadcrumbs of my murder trail so that in the afterlife I can be hunted down in some weird saw game. <laughs> it's very true. Like it's very like, much like dead giveaway. Very weird. Also, Zach, um, didn't Matt have a good point with um, the whole thing about like why? Um, the great great grandmother still mad at Hector all those years. I will say this: I believe she could be mad because it's not just okay. I found out you were wrongfully murdered. You totally were going to come back to our family and all that stuff, but you didn't because you know um, Hector De La Cruz killed you. We get all that, but I will say this: I I can kind of it's. It, I mean, I guess I can forgive that little bit of like. Well, I mean, the dude was murdered. You know, why yeah. wouldn't you forgive him? Is and that he didn't know that he was murdered. He just thought that he had food poisoning for like 80 years or whatever. And she just feels like no matter what, even if you were murdered or had food poisoning, you still chose to leave this family for long stretches of time. You were not home. You were always gone because you were out pursuing this music career when you could have been home with us. And I feel like that's what the the crux of her dislike and disdain was. And it makes me like think about the inner workings of that world. Like they haven't ran into each other. She didn't. Yeah. Like he didn't want to go like, I don't know. For somebody that kept on wanting to like go and, and visit his family, he didn't really visit his family that was already over there. But who knows? We don't. We. I mean, maybe well, there'll be a Hector prequel where we know what's going on. <laughs> and then, and, you know, and Pixar would really run out of ideas. And it also seemed weird that even though when, because when he's in the, uh, what is it, like the the Department of Family Affairs office, and he's like, oh, I can get my blessing from Ernesto de la Cruz or whatever. Like no one in his family was like, he's not related to you <laughs> or whatever. Like that's not the guy. Well, remember, he doesn't stop to even ask anyone. I mean, once he, yeah. he mind, he doesn't even ask anyone about it. They don't know that he's going over there to him until it's too late. Oh, yeah. I guess maybe but- he doesn't say the name. Matt brings up a really good point of like his great great grandfather was there the whole time. They knew both of them were in the land of the remembered, the, the great great grandmother mm. and stuff. And yet they didn't, they didn't like cross paths or he didn't like talk yeah. to the other family. Well, it's been weird because they were in the same like that opening scene when he's trying to like get through the checkout office yeah. and they're like going in like at that same moment. Yep. But um, so like another thing that I think. I don't think it's weird, but it like makes me the avocado think. bit. No, this is going to be like a weird point, but like the movie is called Coco, but it's not really about Coco. It kind of like makes me think like, oh, is it like just because like Coco's the connection between like the two main yeah. characters that we follow? It's like but, Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's it's just like usually when like a movie is called like Finding Nemo, it's about Nemo, mm-hmm. and it like it. Like if it's called like a person's name, it's somebody that has like a bigger impact. Like I, like I feel like it. Like for the long, not for the, for for a little bit. Like I kind of thought like Coco was the little boy just because it's called Coco. Yeah, I mean, I kind like, of even even like I watched the movie and like years later, I'm like, is Coco the little boy? Oh no, Coco's the the great grandmother. Just because it's called Coco, it's like kind of a weird title to give a movie well 
I mean, to be fair, Coco is a very significant character in the film. I mean, it all hinges on her remembering her dad. And more importantly, as he has such a close relationship, and I'm talking about he as a Miguel, has such a close relationship with her to start with. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's through his love of her and what he wants to do that the film kind of is almost like centrally focused. Like if you can imagine she would be the center of like a spider web that kind of branches off into this relationship, that relationship, this relationship, that relationship to each character eventually funneling back to her. And then not to mention the very, very end of the film is about him getting back to her and singing her that song so she can remember her dad. And so like it it is, I mean, the film is centered around her, just not in the way I think that would seem too predictable. And so that's why the film is called Coco, almost as if it's a bit of like a reverence for how, how much impact just one person can have on the entire family. I mean, just, just by knowing her and loving his, his grandmother so much his grandma Coco that, you know, it kicks off everything. And thank God that she had that little like torn off, picture of his face i know <laughs> wow like can- after after the photo goes under the water yeah dude yeah. and then i was um, so sad when the photo went yeah under the water. i yeah oh my gosh i was very i was very upset but um also let's talk about the uh when uh when the the villain is sort of revealed sort of well, yeah, I mean, I guess when it's revealed to the public. Um, oh, yeah, that's like when a, you kind of had a, like uh, a typical had a Mr. Waternoose. Yeah. Where yeah, or it's like, oh, let's go video. It's like, oh, we have a camera. Let's videotape. Yeah. Oh, that's and the villain happens to be saying all these incriminating things. Yeah. Also, I do yeah. like that those TV cameras were reminiscent of the um like the 50s through the 70s style like three lens I didn't, I didn't notice that. That seemed like something that you would notice. Maybe that's like the soccer t-shirt for you. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But just that thing. And then there was another thing that I wanted to bring up before uh, we come back to this. But at the um at the back at the office where um who was who, who was the grandma? The the dead grandma. Uh what is her name? Hold on. Um, and our mama, but when she, um, actually, are you you talking about Hector's uh wife? Yes, yeah, Mama Milda, Mama Milda, yeah, when she's smashing up the Apple II computer and on the desk, and it has like the actual little Macintosh rainbow color heart, yeah, that's I love that, yeah, where they just. It's like not only are all of these people dead, but they're using dead technology essentially in their <laughs> office. And I just thought that was a very just it was a it was a subtle but just very very nice little touch where everything there it was very stylized, but like all of the the weird tech stuff was also dead, which kind of raises more weird questions about this world. I know that level of detail, but I did want to break in with this. You said uh, Meso de la Cruz, um, the the whole sequence where he just reveals his dastardly self and everyone sees it and all this stuff. That third act is a little weak is involving the villain. Like anything involving him and that whole sequence is a bit weak compared to everything else in the film. And whereas like that part kind of dies down, I got to admit, Freaking Ursula has the leg up on Hector de la Cruz, man. Um, or I'm sorry, Ernesto de la Cruz, right? I keep saying yeah. Hector. I feel like I'm saying yeah, it Hector's wrong. the good guy. 
Yeah, it's Ernesto de la Cruz. Ernesto. Um, Ernesto. Ursula is just like swagalicious swag all day. And Ursula's bad throughout the movie. It's like your stereotypical Disney Renaissance villain where it's like, hey, here's the villain. Everybody knows it. And then in in like Pixar movies and I think even like later Disney movies, it's like we don't know who the villain is. Right, and And I like that. I like how you have that betrayal in the flip. It's kind of like an old trope now, though. But you got to admit, Ursula like is so wonderful to hate. Like you love her every time she's on screen. She's so magnetic, especially the way they animated her. Even the showdown Triton at the end. You know, when she one-ups Triton and does all the stuff, and then she takes she becomes the power. like a giant. What do you mean? Yeah. She becomes like a giant balloon, and then he pokes her with a trident. Yes! And, yeah. she, and then that's like how he defeats her. He, has a he rams her with the ship after she makes the maelstrom, remember? That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, but it was so wonderful every time she was on screen. I mean, and then let's just go ahead and say it right now, early Disney animation loved to give us horrific imagery. And the one where she finally turns in, cause she was the beautiful girl. And then when she turns back into her regular Ursula self and she's like crawling towards you to get to, um, she crawls towards basically like the audience for the one shot and then grabs, um, Ariel and dives off the deck. That was actually low key, pretty scary for me as a kid, the way they animated that sequence. And also, like the big face that just appears out of the water, like when she gets yeah. again, she has like a big smile on her face. Uh-huh. Yeah. She was really good, man. She's- <laughs> you okay, Zach? Oh no, I'm fine. I just read a scary text. No, I'm joking. My phone's away because I'm I'm a professional. Uh, but I mean, I will. Oh, you guys, come on, man. Look, all right. I couldn't get to the stupid thing on the computer when someone was calling me. It was a family member who I'm going to have to call back later. But yeah, anyway. No, that's all edited out. So now I have to edit this out too. What phone call? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, the important thing that I'm trying to address here is that like, if we're going to compare the villains even across the movies, the Little Mermaid obviously runs away with the cake, the table, the whole dang reception, even. I mean, the whole party belongs to Ursula. She's well, just a classic villain. I don't know about that. I feel like, sure, she's a great villain, but I feel like Ernesto, That's that definitely feels like a more real, tangible villain. Like, I mean, straight from the beginning of the movie, you just you just see the the arrogance and like the just the just self-aggrandizingness just roll off of him like like water. Right. And those old like film clips that he's watching and all of that. It's very uh and it's like even when he first meets him and then he's like, son, hey, this is my grandson. Look at me, like big wiener energy over here. Like, oh, aren't I aren't I still just so great? And everyone just like feeding his ego for the whole movie. And you're just kind of like, this guy's not really that great. I mean, well, he's fun to like watch, but he's sort of a douche. Well, Ursula is like a villain and almost like somewhat of a main character in the Mm -hmm. film. While like De La Cruz is more of like, here's something that we're going towards. Yeah, he's he's more of like a goal until we meet him and then he yeah and like he's not really ever a main character he's yeah. just like S- sort of like when ray's trying to find luke yeah yeah good point good except point. he's like actually a douche <laughs> and he uh, says more than he says more in uh the first movie that he's introduced to i'm talking about like the most recent trilogy than uh just turning around 
slowly at the end of the movie and then getting second billing. Nice job. Wait, anyway, wait. that's my Star yeah. Wars salt for this episode. Yes, good job. Good job. Way to go. Uh, yeah, sorry, where were we in this? Oh, we were talking about um, comparing the villains. And I will say this, you guys are absolutely right. Ernesto de la Cruz is more of like a pinpoint in the film, basically like an object, almost like a MacGuffin until they actually find him and then we find out he's not really all that great. Um, that's I get that. But I'm just saying that if we have to compare antagonists, which he does become the antagonist of the movie, Ursula is got, I mean, she's got better dialogue. She's a more developed character. We know what her needs and wants are from the outset. She gets a terrific song to sing, whereas Ernesto. Oh, unfortunate souls. Exactly. And it's, it's full of so much character depth. And of course that wonderful um, voice by, I believe it's, Pat Carroll, yeah, Pat Carroll, and um, that that performance is wonderful, and I I just think that if you guys appreciate Ernesto De La Cruz and what he does in the film, and I get it, but I think the rest of the world, anyone with eyeballs and a brain, can see Ursula is still iconic, and you got to give them that. Like, if we're going to compare the movies, we got to compare the villains. Ursula, baby. Ursula. Well, we have to want to take into account that this other movie has had 20 years to like build a following and Coco has been out for two, three. Yeah. So, yeah. Is there That's like any other like major points you want to say about what um, were made before we finish up? Because I think we talked oh, about Coco point. a lot. I do have but, like one more thing I want to say about Coco. Okay, sure. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, I do think that we want to like say a few more things about Little Mermaid too. But yeah, uh, I feel like we haven't said enough. Yeah. But uh, with Coco, one really cool thing that I thought was interesting was even when they were like on the search to find Ernesto and or not the search, but the journey to get into his palace or whatever the heck it was. But you have these throwaway bits where Hector's like, yeah, I worked with him. He wasn't that great. He didn't like write any of his stuff. And Miguel is like, you don't know what you're talking about, you dummy. And like that. That's all very pertinent information to the film that, as it was said, I kind of disregarded. And so I'd really want to like give it to Pixar for being able to feed us like those little bits, because you never know when Hector's telling the truth and what's a lie in the beginning. Right. Yeah, it like, seems like he feels just... like Hector is like, like we think he's a trickster just because he wants yeah. to get into the land of the living, but like is really not. Like throughout he's not. the movie, and, and like he and wants- he's never been able to get to the land of the living because his family basically just admonished him for leaving yeah, and then we, not coming back. We think he's like some sort of scam artist, and yeah, but he's right. like really not, and he's like a good guy. Like his redemption yeah. arc, I already it's, said it is amazing. It's one well, of my I- favorite things in any Pixar film ever. If we are saying one thing about each film, I'll, I'll try to keep this short and sweet, but I do have to kind of introduce a little bit here. So bear with me. Take this ride with me, okay? Um, um, I'm buckled in. in. <laughs> and um, in introducing the concept of Ariel having to give up her voice in order to be human and to go pursue love, it, it was a pretty cool thing to introduce as a concept that she has to overcome that. And she also has to realize that it's not worth losing her voice because in the end, obviously, you know, Oh, she doesn't get true love's first kiss. And then they have the big climactic battle, but also it's a great theme 
to kind of introduce. Now, I'll tell you this, the Little Mermaid does not do anything with this. It's just kind of like uh, a conceit to, you know, have her be silent for the rest of the movie. And and it's kind of like a defining characteristic that is set up. And then it, a lot it cheaper to animate. You know what I mean? But the animation is great for a character, you know, all that stuff. Got it, got it. But I'm just saying it is a great little thing to introduce early on to little girls of like, you see what she had to give up? She had to give up her voice to get what she thought she really wanted. Some guy she, she wanted, never even met. Right. And it was it was this big thing. Now, obviously, everything worked out for her. So I can't say that they actually followed through with that kind of storytelling, that kind of theme that they were looking for. Because um, it seems like everything just works out great because it's a wonderful fairy tale told by Disney. Mm-hmm. But to really kind of dig deep into it, it can spark a great conversation that I could have with my daughter about like, you know, you don't want to be voiceless. That's not something good. If someone's saying that, you know, you can have everything you could ever want, but you got to give up your your ability. You know, in this in this case, it was her voice or her singing. Right. Um, it's not worth it. You should never do that. Nothing should come at such a terrible price. And it it is something cool to think about. It is. I think that's that's worth mentioning before. That's, we kind of decide. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And it's also we sort of in a lot of the Disney movies of that era where it is sort of even like with beauty and the beast, maybe, maybe not as much as this one, but where it is sort of like you have this character, this young naive character like Ariel just jumping head on like, Oh, he's a prince. He's whatever. He's a guy on a boat. I love him. I'm going to do whatever to like meet this human and (laughs) do that. And it's sort of it's well, sort maybe of like, it's like maybe not sixteen year old girl and like just falling in love sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's also it's also I feel, but it like ends up working out for her in the end. Yeah. Where like if you look at something like Frozen, where they're kind of a little bit more progressive with it. When um, yeah. what's who's the ginger one? Anna, 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 whatever. Um, where she falls in love with the prince, and then it's like, oh, it turns out he's the bad guy. Oh, look at oh, that. Where have and I seen like, that before? Like every other yeah. movie. Yeah, but oh, it's... I, absolutely, Zach. And that was the point I was making. It's like, it sets up this really cool conceit, this really great talking point, this idea mm-hmm. from a storytelling perspective, and then does nothing with it. Because as you said, like everything just works out in the end for her. Yeah, He's a great guy. You know, Prince Eric turns out to save her life and really be in love with her. And, it, you know, he yeah. was going to love her even without her voice. And it just all worked out. And it's like, that's not how life really works. So we can't give the movie points overall, but I will give it half a point for having <laughs> like worth talking about. Also, and weren't that's, like that's Prince Eric and Aladdin's like character model almost identical or something? Or it was like one other <laughs> Disney prince where it was basically like the same thing and they just like redressed the hair. A very or defined chin. Yeah. Yeah. They made him Disneyfied, baby. That Disney handsome. Because even uh, Prince Hans, speaking of Frozen, Prince Hans was was had a very defined chin if you go back and look at that character model. <laughs> very defined. Yeah, I love this isn't a movie that we're talking about today, but I love how in Beauty and the Beast Gaston is just a completely different character and art style than everyone else in the movie. All the yeah. other people are like round and short and just yeah. chubby little Yeah, his best friend is like a midget. Yeah. yeah, and they're all they all look like like little doughy bread balls and then gaston's here like this big big hunky like curvy whatever thing 
Yeah. Anyway, we should probably wrap this up. Let's wrap this oh, up. Let's make I, our picks. I got I got one more thing to say. Matt's got one okay. more thing to say before should we wrap we... this down for the final showdown. Should should we bring up the remake that might be coming up for Little Mermaid or no, not? No. Okay, oh. okay, 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 okay. <laughs> well, now that you said that, I feel like we have to at least mention something no, about no. it. Like oh, we have like the news. Matt, break the news everything. to us. Well, it's just like there's announcement and like we have like there was like a big controversy where a black actress is going to be playing Ariel. And oh, my God, I, I remember. No, I remember like it was like the day before Fourth of July and everybody's picking a side and like everybody cares what this remake and what uh, Ariel's going to oh, look wait. like. I do remember that now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's long, And like everybody's like, well, it's not authentic, but I think there are like black mermaids in the movie it doesn't matter about the the black mermaid the point is, is that <laughs> they're mermaids they're a different species yeah like i don't want what i want to say as long as she has red hair it's okay just as a fellow ginger we need that that's, representation out there i mean this is not a natural red that her hair color no. is and that's what no, I, saying, okay. I don't care what color her hair, her skin, or anything is about. You know what I care about? Is Ariel still the same character? Can you apply those same characteristics, those character traits that are inherent in Ariel, and just apply them to any old actress? I don't care if she's Asian, black, or anything. The fact that anyone made a big deal of them casting a black actress is ridiculous. It's stupid. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, because the only thing you should care about is, hey, are they really trying to tell a good story and stay true to the character that I remember from the original animated movie. The rest are completely useless stuff that I, I don't even want to address because it's just the speech of idiots that I, I wish to not give credence to. I I feel like nobody is like really that happy with any of the casting decisions in any Disney remakes. We're not talking about the remakes though. So Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. I just wanted to bring it up. <laughs> just so I can like bring up the redheaded um, thing. Well, uh, and I mean, these are all based off of uh, what was the Hans Christian Andersen story? Was that like based off of something, too? I know there was an opera that The Little Mermaid was like based off of. Rizalco, which has Song to the Moon, which is one of the most beautiful arias ever. Um, but I don't know where that fits into all of this. We should probably <laughs> talk about We should probably spend a half hour talking about the opera Rizalco, which uh, also fits somewhere into this story. <laughs> gotcha um oh wow i see what's oh the abc special this is something different isn't it <laughs> dude their chef their chef louis has a fake mustache yeah in this abc live thing anyway i, I never watched it i didn't care for it i gotta be honest I, well I, how do you know you didn't care for it if you didn't watch it because i didn't watch it that's why i didn't care Anyway, if you're still with us, uh, we should probably uh, place in our place in our bets now or our votes. This yes. is this is very eloquently said. I am uh, word Matt. Uh, me first. Which movie do you think should move on in the Great Movie Showdown? Coco or The Little Mermaid? Uh, going into this matchup, I'm like Little Mermaid has to go through little mermaid is the start of the disney renaissance little mermaid is the reason why we still have disney animation and then i watch coco again and i have to pick coco 
I think Coco's a better all over, like a better overall movie, and it's just. I, I try to look at it as, like, which movie would I want to watch again? Like my favorite movie. Even I, I think like Little Mermaid's more important and more culturally relevant, but uh, I Coco I have to pick Coco. All that's right. like a that's like a grown up movie. It feels like that, like <laughs> like anybody can watch it. And we're we're gonna be uh, doing a podcast about Ratatouille next week, so that's like another one where it's like made for grown ups as well. Yeah. No. Um. Oh, Zach, you didn't even ask me if if I was gonna go next. Sorry. Hang sorry. on. Well, yeah, you jumped in anyway. So Coco, uh, let's, let's start the next section. Will, which movie do you think? should move on in the great movie showdown coco or the little mermaid this is uh, exciting <laughs> I, was I don't know say, what he's gonna pick um but i've actually been deliberating this the entire conversation because i also like matt really tried hard to say oh no little mermaid i mean I, the nostalgia really kind of grabbed me especially um Howard Ashman, the icon that he is, the songwriting. I was like, there's nothing that can compare to the first time I heard, you know, Part of Your World, first time I heard, you know, Poor Unfortunate Souls, you know, such great songwriting, character development. But I also rewatched Coco, rewatched Little Mermaid, and the one that stuck with me, you know, after sharing our, our personal stories, at least my experience with, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, and then also wanting to remember family members, things like that. The themes of Coco resonate more with me and the, the storytelling is much more mature. Um, Cause Zach, we talked about um, the little Mermaid and how they have these great themes set up early on, but they kind of don't really go anywhere and they go with a more kind of, I mean, nothing better describes in cartoony ending. I mean, it turns in suddenly like pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> before pirates of the Caribbean. And so like, it's a great movie. It's the start of the Disney renaissance. It has great music that'll last forever. But the movies, if we are going by filmmaking, I have to go with Coco as well. I have to go with Coco. Wow. All right. Wow. So uh, the movie I was going to pick was also going to be Coco. A sweep of Little Mermaid. Oh, my wow. God. Looks like Little Mermaid got swept under the tide by Coco. How? Um, but yeah, I, I think it is worth noting right now. Um, Little Mermaid is a great film. You should definitely check it out if you have it for whatever reason. <laughs> at this point. I know, um, right? Oh, but, I'm, I'm laughing about that, but also I haven't seen Beauty and the Beast until a year ago. So I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of movies in the Disney catalog right now. We get it. We get it. The Disney vault is hard to open. But you've got Disney Plus now for six ninety five a month. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, I do want to say this really quick on closing. Little Mermaid is definitely a product of its time. Of it pioneered animation in in a bunch of new ways, and um, it was it was kind of responsible for the Disney Renaissance, as as we've been calling it. And, and that- stories back then, just in movies in general, were a lot more. I want I hate to use this word but just flat as far as character development and that that sort of thing like we didn't really have have that sort of dynamic storytelling that we have now where things are a little bit 
Well, I guess we did have it then, but it's not where advanced stories are changing. Are yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I feel like complexity is a good word. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, um, I think, I think of ideally as these movies progress, we should be seeing stronger and better films. And I mean, that does, that's not to say that little mermaid doesn't hold up to modern films. I think it certainly does. But, um, but this was, this was definitely, I think probably our, our hardest episode so far to go. Yeah. I mean, they've all been tricky and they're going to get, they're going to get harder. And we do want to disclose that all of these movies, we, we like Disney films. We think they're great. We think that they, uh, that they push the technology and the industry forward in so many ways. And, um, we just want like all the movies on this list, I think are very, we're going to have a fun ride going through and, uh, <laughs> going to get and, some enjoyment and it's out currently Pixar three, Disney zero Disney, wow. yet to, Disney yet to go on the board. Yeah. 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 And this is the first time that all three of us have, uh, unified in our choice of the movie to go forward. And it's also Will the third is, episode. Yeah. I think, I think Will is like undefeated. Oh, he's three and three. <laughs> oh, like he, he hasn't, uh, yeah, and in our little like spinoff podcast that didn't have to do with Disney or Pixar. Oh, he's right. Picked, he's picked the winner every single time. So Will has a lot of power. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's see what the audience chose with Google Trends. Oh, no. Zach, yeah. we went over this. It doesn't mean no. anything. Let me guess. Little Mermaid because of last year and all the controversy. Oh, let's stop. find out. Well, no, we go by what it is right now at the time of recording. All right, let's do it. I'm down. Uh, the or just little? I think it's the little, right? Yeah, it is. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Let's see. Uh, okay, and let's compare that to. Oh, it's actually not. Okay, so yeah, last year there was a big spike, and then again, um back in on November 3rd for some reason okay and then Coco 2017 film let's make sure that's in there oh wow Coco won <laughs> 14 to four, 11 4 to 0 oh. yeah uh. yeah and uh, it seems like there was a spike in um, October 27th to November 2nd for Coco I'm not sure what that could have been Maybe when the holiday. What the La de la de los Muertos? Something like that, I guess. Um, I thought that was I thought that was uh, May fifth. Uh, no, that's just Cinco de Mayo. But um, oh, <laughs> damn it, Zach. But anyway, I I think that um, once again, I'll I'll second what you said, Zach. Mm-hmm. Is, our decision to pick Coco over Little Mermaid in no way diminishes anything. Um, that is the impact that <sighs> the Little Mermaid had. I mean, let's just you know go ahead and say right now that Little Mermaid is still going to last forever as its own great piece of art because that's exactly what it is down to the animation. But we are just comparing overall filmmaking from storytelling, script writing, um, you know, to I mean we have no shame in nitpicking whichever movie, you know what I mean? So when we nitpick the crap out of Coco still with all the little nitpicks, we have to go ahead and say 
Coco was the better made film overall from character development to plot to making us cry. Yeah. I don't want to say like better. I, I mean, they're both very different movies. I mean, Coco was the movie that made me cry the most is really what it came down to. Well, Zach, thank you. That's our, that's a really good thing to end it on is that these are just our personal thoughts on the films of what we would choose that in no way, you know, diminishes what maybe, you know, someone had a greater impact with the little mermaid and they would totally choose it over everything. Well, that's, yeah. You're you know, not getting like super highbrow academic. <laughs> here. You're getting what movie made us fucking cry. Oh shit. Zach, you're not Day, getting Day of the Dead is October 31st to November 2nd, at least in 2020. I don't know if it changes from oh. year to year. So okay. that's probably why there's a spike. It's like when well, we watch Christmas movies. Maybe I'll watch Coco then. It seems like a good time. Yeah. Uh, all right, you guys. Anyway, uh, should we close it out? Let's close, close it out. out. Let's close it out. All right, Matt. Yeah. I don't know. That's the Coco song that I know that I sang with my daughter the other day. So <laughs> she likes that song for some reason. Mi amor, mi amor. Yeah, right. Remember me. No, I have to say goodbye. Remember me. No, stop! I'm crying again. Yeah, I feel like that's racist. Anyway, we crying? Um, we'll probably we'll probably have faded it out at that point. <laughs> I hope. This has been a nice throw production. Nice throw, Matt.